Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. We're back with the News Snapshots, our new short length news podcast um, from the same team who brought you the OSINT Bunker podcast. Um, I'm joined this evening by Austin and George um, and we're going to be just discussing events over the last two weeks as we start 2024. So to kick us off, Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea. Um, fair to say the Houthis have been causing a bit of trouble out in the Red Sea for a little while now. Um, it's particularly seen an uptick in the last month and a half as a result of events in Israel and uh, the Houthis obviously being pro-Iran, throwing their support behind Hamas um, and stating that their intention is to target any vessels uh, linked to Israel. Now, obviously, what we've seen is they've just been kind of just lobbing missiles into the water, um, not really hitting anything specific and um, seemingly just targeting anything and everything that they can get their hands on. Which is interesting to note, because when the Houthis originally started issuing threats against um, civilian maritime traffic in the area, uh, they made a couple of claims. They made claims that, you know, Russian ships were exempt from this sort of quote unquote blockade. Uh, they said they were only targeting ships necessary to Israel's war effort or to Israel's economy. Um, and the reality of both of those statements uh, couldn't really be further from the truth, right? We've seen uh, Russian vessels or vessels carrying sort of sanctioned Russian goods targeted either via mistake, but, you know, most likely due to the fact that the Houthis probably aren't doing target ID. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of these ships being targeted have nothing really to do with either the Israeli economy or the Israeli military industrial complex. Um, most of the shipments going to Israel are probably coming from the United States. And so the Red Sea isn't a necessary route for those sorts of shipments, right? You're going from the east coast of the U.S. through the Mediterranean to Israel. Um, so it's clear from a uh, sort of a PR perspective that the Houthis want to be seen as sort of assisting um, Hamas and Palestinians, but the reality is that they've just kind of been targeting any civilian vessel within range um, with either anti-ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, or drone. But yeah, I think even I, oh, sorry. Yeah, and, and my, my last little point I'll make here is that uh, I think often people are like, well, the aim hasn't been that great, but I think that's also been in part due to the fact that there's been so many successful interceptions conducted by the Allied Task Force in the Red Sea, whether it be um, US, UK, French, or other Allied member ships. Now, the Houthis mistakenly targeted a Russian oil tanker, is that correct? I believe that was yesterday, yeah. yes. Right, yeah. Russia, who is exempt. Oh. <laughs> Supposedly, yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality that we've seen over the past two weeks is that uh, there really aren't any exemptions. The Houthis aren't really doing target identification procedures. No. They're kind of just firing on any target of opportunity. Yeah. Um, but what's also the reality is that the interception rate has been sublime from yeah. uh, the Prosperity Guardian Task Force. I mean, uh, it's one thing, you know, I think I think often in conversations about the Indo-Pacific, there's always been sort of concerns about what the interception rate for missile swarms or drone swarms would be. Um, and we are seeing in sort of real time on a, on a lesser scale for certain uh, that, you know, Aegis-equipped uh, 
ships are incredibly capable at defending against either drone swarms or even ballistic missiles. I'm sure many of our, our listeners, and I'm sure you guys too, will have heard a lot of people on social media, you know, excusing the Houthis because, oh, they haven't killed anyone. Well, I mean, of course they haven't killed anyone. The majority of what they're firing, well, maybe not the majority, a significant proportion of what they're firing being intercepted. And missiles, you know, weaponry is hitting ships. So are they asking missiles, you know, to hit the ships in a polite and friendly way? I don't know if you two have seen this, but there are a lot of, you know, accounts explaining how, well, just keep in mind that the Houthis actually haven't killed anyone. Not through want of trying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An interesting political statement to make, um, as I haven't heard previously of a, a non-violent launching of ballistic missiles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's worth noting as well, b before we move on, that we've obviously had this incident on the 9th where um, HMS Diamond, the Royal Navy Type 45 destroyer deployed in the region, um, has seemingly been a specific target for the Houthis. Um, obviously the Houthis have, have failed to actually land any hits courtesy of both HMS Diamond's own defensive capabilities and those of uh, allied warships around her. But it's worth saying that that seems to have been the the, the point at which the British government and, and possibly the US government as well have turned around and said, right, okay, no, we've had enough now. The Houthis need to, you know, be, be, be shown that we're not just making threats to deal with them, we are actually going to do something about them now, um, which has obviously resulted in the last 72 hours in a number of uh, airstrikes both by both the US specifically and also a US-UK joint strike uh, the other night. Which I think was a reality we were creeping towards. Um, admittedly, to me at least, at a slower pace than I expected. Mm. But I think it's important to note that as successful as these uh, interceptions and countermeasures have been, these are, you know, fairly expensive pieces of kit on the part of... Um, the Allied Task Force, right? Interceptors are not cheap, uh, and you know, the what was clear was with you know statements coming from civilian maritime carriers that even with all these interceptions, they still weren't very confident about you know continuing shipping in the region. And that's why we've seen sort of a large uh, scale diversion towards the the Southern Horn of Africa. Mm. Um, so I think the the go-ahead for these strikes was a was a combination of acknowledging that you know we can intercept all day but that's not really curing the ills or the fears with some of the civilian um shippers uh in combination with well clearly the drones the missiles aren't stopping um unless we sort of take action to target the infrastructure necessary to continue that uh, i think we can expect that and so i think all of those bits of data were sort of input into the various um, organs of defense in the UK and the US and what we saw as the result limited strikes against Houthi infrastructure yeah I mean and speaking of HMS Diamond I think that I'd say the Red Sea has recently become a sort of proving ground for one of the world's most advanced air defense warships it's to me at least it's comical to think about targeting HMS Diamond with a missile it's like deciding to punch Muhammad Ali and expecting to land a decent hit. It's certainly not very likely, is it? Um, I think it was, yeah, it was Grant Sharps recently lauded the crew 
for their exceptional service in the Red Sea, and rightly so. It's I can't imagine the the fear that, that goes through someone's mind when they're being actively targeted by missiles. But yeah, uh, the crew's remarkable efforts led to, I think it was, the destruction of seven, eight attack drones. Diamond, uh, American ships, obviously including the, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, the USS Gravely, the Mason, and I think there was another one. Laboon. Um, Laboon, yeah, but between those, they downed, was it 18 UAVs, a few anti-ship cruise missiles, and there was a ballistic missile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, anyway, HMS Diamond is doing exactly what she was designed to do, detect and down missiles. She's absolutely nailing her job. Now, we all know, you know, well, I'm assuming we all know the Type 45 destroyer's sort of weapons loadout. It's um, Samson radar. It can, you know, all the sort of headline PR brochure quotes, like it can track a whopping 2,000 threats from over 250 miles away. It can track a cricket ball at ridiculous distances and speeds. But I think here's the catch with that. I don't think Diamond's carrying enough missiles to hang out, you know, to hang tight in an extended long fight. That could be a problem if the Houthis keep up a sustained attack. Was it? You're probably going to correct me here. March 2001, with the integrated review, they promised to beef up the missile count, and it's 24. I could have that wrong. Sea Scepter missiles being added in mm. silos. Yeah. So it's going from 48 to 72, a 50% increase. So obviously that means. More missiles and potentially, you know, scope to add more Aster 30 missiles, which listeners may or may not be aware. The Aster 30 is the longer range cousin of the of the Aster 15. Now, thing that's it's, it's great, it's fantastic. It's but it's not so much of a sprint to do this. It's 2032 when all of the six ships will have this done. So it's a smart move. It's it's a cheap move, but my God, <laughs> it's going to take a long time. Yeah, and of course by 2032 they're looking at the Type 83 coming yeah. online as, as a potential replacement, at the very least being sort of design locked in and construction perhaps beginning by that point. So it's, as you say, it's not a quick fix. And no. I think our American allies will probably agree, even they're starting to look at their own weapons loadouts on, on, on the Arleigh Burks and perhaps are starting to think, hmm... You know, maybe lasers need to be brought online a little bit quicker. Maybe there needs to be a look at a cheaper, more compact surface-to-air missile capability. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Austin, but I think the Laboon, the Gravely, and the Mason between them have fired some, you know, somewhere in the region of seventy or eighty uh, surface-to-air missiles, or uh, have at the very least shot down seventy or eighty sort of UAVs and uh, missiles in the last couple of weeks. I mean, yeah, that for one. And also at a certain point, it was just the USS Kearney. That's the fourth uh, um, destroyer mm. uh, we're missing out on here. And it was kind of doing it by itself for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, alongside the Mason sort of in a supporting role. Um, yeah, a significant amount of sort of counter-missile, counter-UAV munitions have been expended by those guys. Um and so I think there will be an appetite moving forward for a, a cheaper, more numerous option. Um, but it remains to sort of be seen how that develops. Yeah, and it, it, it's important to note that today the uh, the Germans have announced that they're sending one of their frigates, the Hessen, out to join the task force. Um, and the Hessen does have the advantage of having two 21-cell uh, RAM rolling airframe missile launchers alongside 
I think it carries uh, 24 uh, SM2 standard missiles and I think it also carries 32 quad-packed Evolve Sea Sparrows. So it's, it's a decent anti-aircraft sort of loadout for a vessel of the size. Um, but again, you know, as I say, um, the Type 83 and, and, and obviously the American DDGX or whatever the program ends up being called eventually, um, that they're going to need to look at whether or not they're going to fit more missiles or they're going to develop a new compact capable uh, sort of, but cheap counter UAV missile um, and it's 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 not a problem that's going away either obviously the airstrikes that we mentioned a short while ago um, targeted I think it was 30 or 40 different locations in total um, well over a hundred munitions uh, launched com combination of Tomahawk cruise missiles from both surface and subsurface platforms and then obviously paveway bombs from RAF Typhoons and various other missiles from uh, US Navy Super Hornets but the Houthis have carried on and we've seen today another attack and uh, as you mentioned there was an attack yesterday on a Russian tanker travelling through the Red Sea the, the, this problem's not going away regardless of you know how hard the Houthis are hit by these attacks and that's something we've got to bear in mind. And as you say, that you know the the weapons capacity of these warships we've got deployed there is going to be a key factor in how effective that deterrent and how effective that escort role is going to be. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think what's important to note moving forward is I think attacks will obviously continue. You know, obviously one round of airstrikes, or I guess two at this point, isn't going to be enough to sort of fully uh, cap the Houthis ability to operate. Um, I think what's going to be important to look at though is what is the tempo of them. If we see start seeing sort of a, a slowing in the tempo of their ability, um, amount of munitions sent towards either merchant or military vessels over the next week, then we can kind of confirm that those initial round of airstrikes did do significant damage and then further slowing after another round of airstrikes, you know, so on and so forth. This is going to be something to watch in regards to the quantity, how that changed for the next week. And I think with that, we'll quickly hop over to just updates in regards to the Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, it's fair to say there's been a little bit of a slowing um, in sort of the the operational tempo for Israel over the last week or so. Um, obviously they now control most of northern Gaza um, and it is still believed that their intent is to push south and to continue to deal with Hamas wherever they find them. Um, worth noting as well, I think the South African attempt, I'm going to call it, to take Israel to the International Courts of Justice and accuse Israel of genocide um, from what I've seen of sort of the opening statements from both sides, it, it it sounds like South Africa is well and truly out of its depth, um, which probably comes as no surprise to anyone given their own track record of things like this. Yeah. But um, in terms of obviously the, the situation on the ground, it, it's fair to say we're not seeing the sustained pushes that 
sort of categorised the first sort of 90 odd days of Israel's activities in Gaza. Um, we are now sort of well over 100 days on, I think it is, from the October 7th attacks that, that obviously caused this flare-up in the Middle East. Um, and it's fair to say that we're still seeing sort of support from all the usual voices and obviously the detractors of Turkish government particularly being very, very anti-Israel in, in, in its stance over the current situation. But I think it's also probably worth noting that Benjamin Netanyahu's government is in a bit of turmoil at the minute, and that's potentially why we're seeing a slow in, in, in the tempo of operations there. Um, I think it's fair to say that members of his own cabinet now are also turning around saying, yeah, he, he, he shouldn't be in power anymore, we, we need a new leader. Which obviously in a time of war is is not something that you know a nation particularly wants. It's you know, it causes a certain amount of instability within the hierarchy. Um, what's your thoughts on that, gents? Yeah, I, I think politically Netanyahu's unpopularity is increasing. The longer this goes on, I think that trend will continue. Um, beyond that, you know, it's been a pretty consistent uh, sort of body count out of Gaza. And the longer that goes on, in addition with, you know, the longer more Israeli casualties come out of God, um, politically, that will remain sort of a negative for Netanyahu. Uh, I don't expect that to change. And again, it seems like we're <laughs> seeing sort of, you know, chatter about expanding operations in the north of the country of Israel in regards to Lebanon. I think that the largest things I've seen in the last um two weeks have been, you know, that strike in Beirut targeting uh, Hamas leadership, um, in addition to, you know, the continuing operations in Gaza itself. And then also, I mean, continued Israeli security operations in the West Bank. I mean, those have never really uh, slowed. And in fact, I'd say that they've escalated in, in amount. Um, so in my opinion, politically for the Israelis, the longer this goes on, the worse it gets for Netanyahu's administration in regards to um, popularity in regards to the fact that you know we did see some hostage exchanges about a month ago we haven't seen really much further beyond that mm. um i think the the central issue is going to continue for the israelis going to continue to revolve around the hostages um until that issue is sort of corrected then continued body count is going to play towards the negative for them um and that's i think where i end up yeah, I think there's. I don't really think there's much prospect of this slowing down at all. From what I read, I could be wrong. I could be misquoting this, but IDF commanders have been told to brace for the operation, stretching potentially even another year before the objectives of dismantling the mass are even close to being met. Yeah, and, and another conflict that's not certainly not coming to an end anytime soon. Obviously, is is uh, the Ukraine Russia conflict, and um, obviously. Now we're in 2024, we've, we've, we've got the hope in coming soon of the arrival in Ukraine, hopefully of some F-16s, um, along with trained pilots who are still undergoing their training at the moment, I believe. Um, what, what do we think that the, the year ahead is going to look like for Ukraine? So I, as of right now, we're in another period where we're seeing um, increased strikes uh, by the Ukrainians on Crimea that you know it 
over the last time this happened was you know last year around the same time where the ukrainians had um precision guided long-range fires necessary to conduct these sorts of strikes um and you know the ability to to execute them and we've seen them do so quite effectively once again Crimea. Uh, the response to this in the last cycle we had was that russia would target um more civilian centers uh in ukrainian population hubs so kiev kharkiv Kherson, um and in some cases lviv I think we're seeing that as well. We're seeing more consistent either drone swarms or missile um, strikes against Kyiv itself or Kharkiv more often. Uh, I think that'll continue. In regards to the front lines themselves, not a ton of movement. I mean, some some choice things have come out recently. I'm sure you both have seen the, uh, the video of those two Ukrainian Bradleys teaming up on that uh, Russian T-90, which, fascinating watch. Um, but beyond that, uh, I haven't seen a ton of movement on my end. I don't think we're going to see a ton of movement in the winter. I think, uh, as we've seen from the Ukrainians right now, they're mostly focused on sort of constructions. I think that'll definitely continue in the short term. Um, in the long term, the, the question remains when, you know, the U.S. Congress can get its act together. Uh, we're looking at here in the states we're looking at you know another continuing resolution we haven't had a full-fledged budget in effect since i want to say september or earlier um off the top of my head i may be wrong by a month or so there um but until that issue can get figured out you know we're still looking at these sort of piecemeal apportionments towards ukraine previously sort of large-scale uh, bills were sent targeting um until that happens, I, I don't think we can expect major sort of offensive movements by the. My view, I, I think 2024, unfortunately, will be the, the year when the Ukraine war stops being viewed in terms of public perception as a, a war in Europe and more of a, a nearer version of Iraq and Afghanistan, where I think, you know, the public have a sort of fatigue, political leaders, leaders have a, a sort of fatigue about support so it's something we're, we're seeing in the united states and a lot of european countries but i think europe really needs to work out whether it can continue to support ukraine militarily um if u.s assistance were to end but i'm not much of a <laughs> um fortune teller yeah and it, it's worth saying that regardless of whether the u.s support continues this this is europe's fight ultimately and European leaders need to decide whether or not they're going to continue to support Ukraine in that fight or whether they're going to be prepared to fight that fight themselves because Russia's been fairly vocal at different points that its intentions are not just for Ukraine, its intentions extend beyond that. Um, and yeah, uh, granted at the moment they don't have that capability and Ukraine is holding them at bay. Um, but as you say, without US and, and European support, how long Ukraine can hold out for remains to be seen. Absolutely. I don't have much. I, I will say I don't have very severe doubts about how long Ukraine can hold out for. I think the larger question is when can Ukraine return to an offensive posture? Um, I think as of right now, as of what we've seen, Ukraine can kind of hold on the defensive indefinitely or for the foreseeable future. Um, I think the, the need for further funding, the need for further equipment apportionment is going to matter far more on their ability to conduct 
offense than it would be on their ability to Yeah, uh, you've dropped out there, Austin. Oh, where did I where did I drop out at? Um, you were saying something about their offensive capability, and then you just suddenly went silent. Okay, cool. Uh, so I, what I was saying is, I I, I don't have um, much doubt about the Ukrainians' ability to continue holding their defensive lines um, or seeing sort of minimal movement along those uh, with their current sort of apportionment of funds, equipment, and everything like that. I think the in the in the mid near to midterm. Um, Moving into the long term and bringing it slightly back to the near and midterm, if this is making sense, my greater concerns on the, necess the necessity for sort of a rapid um, uh, resuming of aid is their ability to get back into an offensive posture. Yeah, we, we had Zelensky, was it very recently, ruling out a ceasefire, saying a pause would give Russian forces a, a chance to, was it rearm or regroup? So I, yep. I, don't think, I don't think Ukraine are looking to set this you know, on Russia's terms this is going to drag out yeah and on that note we are going to bring this episode to an end um, thank you very much for listening this has been uh, the first episode ever of the OSINT Bunker News Snapshots um, and we should be back with you in about two weeks time for another news update